grace, Merry Christmas, peace on earth, and goodwill to you. From God our Father and our newborn King, Christ the Lord. To fear or not to fear? That is the question. And that is the sermon title for tonight as well. For those of you who like to keep track of that. To fear or not to fear? To be honest, that's a genuine question that seems to crop up even more urgently at Christmas time. Why? All through the Advent season and building up to this very moment, we've been preparing for Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. God coming to make his dwelling among us, pitch his tent, a holy visit from highest heaven. Now, does a visit from God sound like comforting news to you, or does it sound more like a threat? Anxiety is on the rise as we contemplate the intention and meaning of this holy visit. As if, right? As if we human beings did not already have enough on our plate plate to worry about. These are indeed anxious times in which we live. War, rumors of war, cold war revisited, internal political wars, a violent discord within our own country from our own countrymen, polarization. Speaking of being polarized, much of our nation tonight has now been hit with a life-threatening polar blast, a so-called bomb cyclone that seems to have accompanied St. Nick from the North Pole. As holiday celebrations have already begun, more than a million of our fellow Americans are without power. We should remember them in our prayers. The rising level of angst in today's world, sadly, is not just limited to us adults either. Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore recently conducted a survey comparing the fears of grade school kids 30 years ago next to the top five fears of today's grade school children. Animals. The fear of dangerous animals topped the list 30 years ago compared with the number one fear of kids today, divorce. Rounding out the next four fears back then in the early 90s were dark rooms with no night lights. Keep that in mind. Maybe late Christmas present, high places, strangers, and loud noises. In contrast, the remaining top fears of today's kids are war, cancer, pollution, and being mugged or violently attacked by people who are acting like brute beasts. Those weighty fears on their little hearts and minds are a far cry from visions of sugar plums dancing in their heads. Instead, it's a rather crushing load of worries for today's kids to bear. And yes, that in itself stirs up even more anxiety among us adults because we now have even more to answer to from our creator and judge, causing these little ones to stumble. So at this time of year, when we hear that God Almighty is coming, we need to know, is he angry? Is he coming after us? Or is he coming for us? And what's he going to do with us or to us when he does arrive? Have you yourself ever felt scared of God? The Bible says in various places, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
I have certainly felt the fear of God. I recall such a feeling as a grade school kid myself, thinking, God must not be happy with the way I'm regularly underperforming when it comes to keeping his commandments. Loving God, serving my neighbor first. Funny, but not funny. I still fear God's displeasure for my own underperforming as an adult at times. Do you share that fear also? Maybe sometimes? If you can relate, you come by your dishonesty and all your other vices honestly. The apple does not fall far from the tree. And by tree, I mean the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And by apple, I mean the forbidden fruit, which our first parents, Adam and Eve, defiantly plucked from that tree, and they did eat. What was their immediate reaction? Hint. It wasn't what they were hoping for. And it wasn't what that lying serpent had promised them about becoming like God. God was and is and forever shall be holy, holy, holy. We, as in our first parents and every one of us after them, we are now noticeably naked and ashamed. And you can add on top of that, we became defiled and corrupt from the core of our heart on to our outward behaviors. What do those first parents do then as we look back on them? Those first parents who recently discovered their own nakedness and shame. They run and hide. Or as Adam himself put it, when he discovered he could run, but he could not hide from God's all-seeing eye, Adam said this to God, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. In Genesis 3.10. Mankind has been naive, naively playing a game of hide-and-seek Ever since, we still try to hide, and that may take the form of denials, deflections, as we try to hide behind others whom we blame for our own grievous faults. Adam and Eve certainly both played that blame game before God, too, didn't they? And today, we, too, are quite proficient at the blame game. But thank God. Thank God that he doesn't see any of this as being a game at all. No, it's truly a matter of life and death. In John chapter 4, Jesus was straight up with the Samaritan woman he met while on his travels. The time is coming, he tells her. Indeed, it's here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is seeking such who will worship him that way. God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That's what God seeks. And if God isn't seeking, we're not finding our place with him. God takes the initiative. Back in the garden after their fall from grace, God called out to our first parents. He sought them out. Adam, where are you? Like a good shepherd, God today still seeks the lost. He seeks them to save them. And we, for our part, we still instinctively hide in fear of God, like it's in our DNA, because it is. It's in our fallen human nature, our spiritual DNA, our sinful nature that we've inherited 
on down through the generations. We are, to switch metaphors, the mouse who entirely runs from the cat, who would be God. The Holy One whom we still mistakenly think is out to get us. But didn't Jesus say, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10. Who is Jesus referring to right there? The one who can destroy in hell. Now be careful before you answer. I often trip up our confirmation students on this question as they more often than not answer that this is referring to the devil, probably because it refers to hell. But no, it is God alone who judges the heart of man. And that he will, at some point beyond judgment day, throw hell itself into the lake of fire along with death and Hades. That's what Revelation chapter 20 foretells. It's in the back of the book, how hell ends up. However, contrary to what our worst fears tell us, God does not want you, he does not want me to end up there in hell. Rather, as 2 Peter says, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. That's good news you can use. God does not wish to execute a judgment of guilty for you and me as we stand before him naked and ashamed, even though the guilt and the shame are our, our own doing. Or I should say, they're our own undoing. God wants to save us, so he sends a savior, his own dear son. Fear not, fear not, says the Christmas angel to the lowly shepherds. The angel says, fear not, and now that's the plot twist in this scriptural drama of redemption. Those hillside shepherds outside of Bethlehem, keeping watch over their flock by night, stayed perfectly within character when fear gripped them at the sudden appearance of that Christmas angel, the one who greeted them with his fear not opener. This fearful response to an angel would have been especially understandable if that Christmas angel was anything like the angel's Ezekiel describes in his vision, for example. Those were the very strange-looking angels with four faces and four wings and all those eyes everywhere, all over their wheels within wheels of fire. Just check out Ezekiel chapter 1 sometime, but don't do it right before nodding off to sleep if you're prone to nightmares. Now, we know angels can take on different forms because, for example, in Genesis, Abraham and Lot both encountered some angels whose appearance must have resembled that of normal human beings for which these angels were indeed mistaken back in Sodom. You might remember that. But then there is Isaiah's encounter with the six-winged cherubim in the very throne room of heaven. That was another high-level fear response on Isaiah's part who said that he was undone. You can't blame him, right? Throne room of God. So any way you call it, you can't blame these shepherds either in Luke 2 for being terrified, even at the sight of one angel. Remember, it was but one angel in 2 Kings 19 who slew 185,000 vicious Assyrian soldiers in just one night's work. 
That was just one angel. The shepherds didn't have a chance if something were to break out on that hillside against the angel. Now imagine how the fear factor on the part of these angels must have, again, spiked, really shot up when Luke says, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. Oh, boy. Most likely, they weren't even over the fear of seeing that first angel quite yet. Then their dark night was instantly lit up, set aflame like nothing they had ever seen before. You bet. They were going to do exactly what the angel instructed them to do. They said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. Psychologists today are usually the first ones to remind us, timid human beings, that there is a standard choice before us when we are seriously confronted with a fearful situation. What is that? It's called fight or flight, right? You've heard of that. The fight or flight response. I'm sure you have heard of it at least. You probably have experienced it at one time or another in your own life. It's a primitive response that takes sometimes only milliseconds to decide upon. You size up the impending danger, and then you attack or retreat, each one as fast as you can, like your life depending on it, because it often does. But there there is also left out here a third response, fight, flight. And this third response is not often included in the discussions about being sore afraid like those shepherds were. That often overlooked third response is, in a word, surrender. Surrender. And I believe it is this third response that solves the riddle that God's word seems to pose for us tonight. Is God, including all his awesome messengers from heaven, is he someone to fear or not to fear? When our only choices are the first two, flee from him or try to fight against him, Well, those really don't lead to a very happily ever after, do they? Or a blessed hereafter. We often forget about this third choice, probably because it is the least natural for any of us to do. Because this one requires trust. Trust in the one you are surrendering or submitting to. Otherwise, you would naturally flee or fight in an attempt to vanquish him or whoever it may be, that you fear. Without trust, there's no genuine submission. And so a new decision has to be made in all your calculations. Is this one to whom I'm going to submit worthy? Is he trustworthy? The shepherds in our Christmas gospel were convinced, at least convinced enough to check out the angelic proclamation. And sometimes for us fearful creatures who are so slow to believe and need help with our unbelief, that's all we have to go on, just to taste and see that the Lord is indeed good. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the message of Christ, St. Paul tells the Romans. And these angels to to these shepherds proclaimed the message, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold... I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign to you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. 
that gospel proclamation will become the shepherd's own proclamation as their own faith grew stronger with each step closer and closer to the manger until, behold, the Christ child. Just as the Christmas angel had told them, they trusted the word of God's messenger and they beheld with their own eyes the very normal-looking, helpless Bethlehem babe swaddled in that manger who was the very word of God incarnate. At the manger, their terror turned into trust. Their reaction turned into reverence and awe. Their fear became faith. Faith they acted on, and in turn, faith that they themselves proclaimed to all who would hear, and word spread. As you now contemplate the message, the true meaning of Christmas tonight, our gracious God invites you to cast all your fear, all your anxiety on him, knowing that he cares for you. You can, as Luther puts it in the catechism, fear, love, and trust in God of all things. It's possible. For this coddling Christ child in this little town of Bethlehem is God's unassuming gift to you and me and to the whole world. The hopes and fears of all the years are truly met in thee tonight. Merry Christmas. And now may the peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.